Today's reading is taken from Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. And in the church Bibles, which you'll find at the end of the pews, it can be found on page 268. So that's Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi Naomi returned with Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I walked through the uh, meeting room just a moment or two ago and saw all of the cookies right there, ready for the invites tomorrow. So if you've cooked, if you baked any cookies for tomorrow, for the invites for the big lunch, thank you so much. They look delicious. I'm going to do my best not to eat them and save them for the invites. Okay, Okay, I won't have any, I promise. These are for the invites. Okay, so we're in our third part in our Sunday morning teaching series in, in the book of Ruth. And so far, we've been focusing on one of the key characters in chapter one of the book of Ruth, which is, of course, is Ruth. And let's just do a tiny, tiny whistle-stop tour of what we've seen so far. What we've seen is famine in God's promised land and God's people in a very, very difficult place. There's a low spiritual ebb. So this family, led by Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they up sticks and they move to the land of Moab. That's away from God's people. That's away from God's promised land into the land of Moab, expecting to find greener grass, expecting to find a better land life, but what are they met with? Death and tragedy, because what happens is the three men of this family, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, well, they end up dying. We don't know exactly why, leaving behind the three women of the family. You've got Naomi and her two Moabite daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Now, what we've been following is this conversation that begins to unfold as Naomi hears that there's now food back in her hometown. It says, the Lord has visited the, uh, the people, and now there's, there's food in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, remember, means the house of bread. There is now bread in the house of bread. And so she then endeavors to go back. And you remember, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you remember the conversation that unfolds. You've got Naomi saying to her two daughters-in-law, don't come with me, go back to Moab. Can you see I've got absolutely nothing to offer you? And then she seems to speak ironically or sarcastically. Look, are you going to wait around for me to have two more sons so that you have husbands to marry in the future? I mean, you can see the irony of that. No, of Of course not. So why don't you go back to Moab, Naomi, and Orpah? Now, with that little bit of persuasion, Orpah turns around and she goes back to Moab. But remember what we saw with Naomi was this kind of uh, loyal, committed, tenacious stubbornness within her. No, I'm not going to listen to you, mother-in-law Naomi, because I'm coming with you. And you remember the key, the key in her statement was, my God, your God will be my God. 
your people will be my people. You remember that? We looked at that statement, didn't we? Beautiful statement, but it's a statement of faith from Naomi. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to God's people. I'm going back to the God who's made the promise to his people. That's the kind of people I want to be with right now. So it's a statement of faith. So we've been looking at Ruth, haven't we? We've been looking at how her story unfolds. And what we've said is that there's a defining conversion moment in Ruth's life. It's Moab and Bethlehem, and she turns to Bethlehem. Now, there's another key character in chapter 1 we haven't looked at yet, and we know who that is. That is Naomi. Now, what we're going to see this morning is Naomi coming back to her hometown and openly and honestly declaring the kind of pain she's been through. Now, now I'm, I'm guessing, and maybe I'm wrong here, we have not quite experienced the sudden loss like Naomi did. Maybe we have, maybe I don't know. But she loses the three men in her life, it seems like, at the same time. And so she is limping back to Bethlehem with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, in tow. And she shows up in her hometown in a heartbroken, agonizing, grief-stricken place. To say she's hurting would be an understatement. But what I want to look at is how she responds to the heartache she's in. She she refers to this as bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Two occasions, she's using the word bitter. I want to ask the question, how how does she respond to the bitter circumstances she finds herself in? I mean, how, how does Naomi respond to these unwanted, hurting, suffering, agonizing, I wish they would go away kind of things in life? How does Naomi respond to that kind of a pain that she's in? Now, like I say, we're, we're probably, I'm guessing, maybe I'm wrong, we're probably not being through that kind of a grief as suddenly and as extensively as she did. But what I do know is that we go through circumstances that threaten to make us horribly bitter and resentful. I mentioned this last week at uh, the Sunday evening service. When, when I first started as a pastor, um, a, little bit, a little bit green and trying to understand, uh, learn the ropes a little bit, and I remember saying to Quince, my wife, uh, after a couple of, couple of weeks in the job, I said to Quince, I said, you know what? I think about 50% of people in the world and in the church are carrying some kind of a burden at this present time. Isn't that amazing? 50% of people. Now, a couple of weeks later, I sat around the dinner table again. I said, Quince, I've got to revise that figure because I think it's closer to 80% of people are carrying some kind of a burden all of the time. And then two weeks after that, I said, Quince, I've got to revise that one more time. I think it's just about 100% of people, just about 100% of the time, are carrying something heavy, are carrying something they wish they wish would go away carrying something that threatens to make them bitter and resentful, carrying something that they just want to say, this hurts and I could really do without it. I wish it was different. Now, of course, we face all manner of different burdens and heaviness, don't we? For for some of us, it's going to be a financial burden. For some of us, it's going to be a a, a decision somebody made with money or we made with money. And, And we've lived with the pain of that for the last few years, maybe even decades. Uh, For some of us, it's going to be some relationship strain. It's just been really, really hard. Maybe marriage, maybe someone in the family. Something's broken down and it's just heavy and it hurts. And maybe you feel, well, it threatens to make you bitter or resentful. 
So, sometimes it's, we, we hurt for a loved one because they're making a silly decision where they are spiritually. And sometimes it's illness. Sometimes it's our own illness. Perhaps it's the illness of a loved one or the suffering of people who just seem innocent. See, I could just go on, couldn't I? I think the thing I've learned is that just about 100% of us, just about 100% of the time, are carrying something heavy, something that hurts, something that threatens to make us bitter or resentful, something we wish would just go away. So so that's why I want to ask the question, how how does Naomi respond to the bitter circumstances she finds herself in? And what does she do? What does she say? What does she stand on? What does she see? Because if we could see how Naomi responds, maybe we could glean something from this very, very pain-ridden chunk of Ruth chapter 1. Maybe we could glean something to see what she looks to, to see what she stands on, and to see how she responds. So, so to answer that question, I want to split it up into three really simple things. We're going to look at what she says, we're going to look at where she stands, and we're going to look at what the author of Ruth wants us to see. Now, that's easy to remember. They all begin with S, don't they? Must have made it. They all begin with, we begin with S. So what she says, what she stands on, and what the author of Ruth wants us to see. Now, now none of this along the road is going to be easy, but I hope that her response to her pain is going to be helpful. What she says, where she stands, and what the author wants us to see. So so why don't we dive back into verse 19 and see how this, this new scene in the book is framed. So look at this, verse 19. So the two of them, remember, that's Naomi and Ruth, Uh, went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now notice the repetition of Bethlehem here. And when they came to where? Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now now what we have in this, this short few verses here, we have the word turned said three times right. It might come up as returned or came back. But in the Hebrew, remember that word? We looked at it. It's the word shuv. So you put the word shove and shoe together, and you get shuv, which means to turn. We get that three times. And then we get the name Bethlehem mentioned three times. So there is still this emphasis. There is a turning that goes on, and it's a turning where? It's a turning to Bethlehem. Now, what happens when these two rock up into Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem? The city, the town, the village is stirred. I guess this is kind of like an EastEnders moment in the book of Ruth. If you don't know EastEnders, it's, uh, it's probably the longest-running soap in the UK, I think. And it's, it's quite dramatic, and lots and lots of people love it. But, but EastEnders has been running for decades. So you know what that means? They, they can resurrect old characters at any point that they want. So sometimes in EastEnders, what you'll have is some blast from the past where some character suddenly emerges 10, 11, 12 years later, and it's very dramatic, and everybody's talking about it. Maybe, I remember years ago, Grant Mitchell, he came back after years of being away, and it was this big stir. I mean, it was so, so stirring that it was on the, night, uh, the, on the 6 o'clock news, and it was in the newspapers, and it's only a soap. But people loved it. But what happened? What happened in this country? What happened in EastEnders? Always come back and everybody was stirred. What do we have? Naomi coming back into her hometown after a time of being away and the town is stirred. Now here's something to note about how communities operated at the time Ruth was written. They were much more interconnected than we are today. Now, Now we tend to align ourselves with other types of communities, not really the street that we live on or the village or the part of town we're in. 
We, we might be in an online community. We might be in a church community. We might be in a community at work. But back then, the community was going to be the place that you lived, and people didn't really move far away from that. And once a month here at BRBC, we have something called the Fellowship Lunch. And at the Fellowship Lunch, we have people from, elderly people from all over the area who wouldn't normally be able to get to church or don't come to church, and they come along to BRBC, and they get, they get a really delicious lunch, and then there's, there's a dessert, there's cheese and biscuits, there's teas and coffees, and then they get a time to sing some old familiar hymns that they know, and then there's a gospel talk for them. And it's amazing. It's, it's, this ministry, once a month, is just such a lifeline to some of these people. But I love sitting around the tables with them. And one question I love to ask about the old Ruffham faithful is to say, what was Ruffham like? Because most of them were born in Ruffham, and they'll usually say something like this, oh, it's very different to how it is today. Everybody knew each other. Everybody knew what was going on. If something happened on one side of the village, you can guarantee by the next morning, people on the other side of the village knew about it, and they knew everything about the person whom that thing had happened to. They, They just knew everyone. And they said people would talk to each other over the fences. There would be events on the streets. People just knew. They were interconnected. People didn't move very far. The furthest they would move is maybe a couple of miles down the road, just a few miles away from the in-laws and their parents and the rest of the family. It was just more interconnected. Now, we know 21st century doesn't life, community life doesn't really work like that. Village life, town life, city life doesn't really work much like that anymore. But I think 1950s Ruffham, is closer to Ruth chapter 1, Bethlehem, than 1950s Ruffham is to 2019 Ruffham. You see, there's an interconnection. So, as Naomi comes back, what's the question that they ask? Is this Naomi? Is this her? Is this Naomi? Now, we don't know exactly why they ask that question. It could be just out of surprise as a kind of, is this Naomi? Wow! Or is it like a query or curious, is that her? Is that who Naomi is? We've never met her before. Or it could be kind of, is that Naomi? That her time away, the grief she's been through, is just etched into her face and she's aged? We don't know. But the question is, the the town is stirred, is that Naomi? And then she responds by saying it as it is. Look at this in verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Follow this closely here and look at some of the repetition in the concept. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? A lot of words there, but essentially what she's saying is, this is really, really hard. I'm bitter. I'm facing bitter circumstances. I'm utterly empty. The Lord's hand has gone out against me. You read it earlier on in chapter 1, I I think it's in verse 13, where they're having this conversation and she said, the Almighty, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, or the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, and my circumstances are bitter. But here's the thing we need to recognize. When she comes in, she doesn't say, oh, I had a bit of a road bump in Moab, but I tell you what, I'm absolutely fine. I'm going to carry on and pretend everything's okay. We don't read that, do we? We we don't see Naomi rocking up into Bethlehem with the pain she's carrying and pretending that everything's okay. What do we see? We see an open, honest, authentic declaration and a statement of how she's actually feeling and how much it actually hurts right now. So what you have with Naomi is this open declaration of how she feels. Now remember what we were saying at the beginning. We're going to look at what she says. What does she say? 
She says it as it is. Naomi says it as it is. Now, why, why can that be important? <laughs> well, here's the thing. We find out throughout Scripture, people going through hard times and taking the permission to say it as it is. In the Bible, it's called a lament. And with a lament, it begins with, this really hurts. It's really hard, and I wish it was different. But what we have in Scripture, you can find it all over the place, particularly in the Old Testament, is people stating and taking the permission to go to God, to go to those around them and say to them, this is actually how hard it is right now. Now, why is that important? Well, firstly, because a human being, more than being a logical being, is an emotional being. We're far more driven by our wants than our logic, than we like to admit. So emotions are important. But here's what happens. When you begin to talk about the pain that you're going through, and notice, I'm not saying this is easy. When you begin to talk to the Lord and to others about how painful it is, you begin to make sense and bring order into the chaos that pain has brought. I'll say that again. In lament, we have permission. When we say it as it is, We have permission to say it as it is. And what happens is we begin to orientate ourselves. We bring order into the chaos that the pain has brought. That's how lament works. We get given permission to bring that kind of an order. Now notice, I'm not saying that this is really, really easy. I think that's what we need to recognize. Saying how we feel isn't always easy. Sometimes we just like to lock it away. Sometimes we just like to do what churches and our families have always told us. Just be quiet, put a smile on, and carry on, and just pretend everything's okay. But we open up the Bible, what do we find? We find prophets, we find Naomi, we find King David in the Psalms, finding an orientation, an order in the pain, in the chaos that the pain brings. So with Naomi, she says it as it is. And what if Naomi, like us, what what, what if she'd come back and said, and felt the pressure of everybody around her saying, don't say anything, don't say anything, just put the smile on. What what if she'd kind of succumbed to that? And what if we succumbed to that? What happens? What happens if we don't say it as it is? What happens if we don't go to God with our pains or to the people around us? What happens? Well, here's what happens. We either carry on naively in our lives pretending everything is okay, And then what will happen? What will happen is we begin to fixate on the pain. What happens when we begin to fixate on the pain? Well, we begin to get resentful. What happens when we get resentful? Well, then we get bitter. What happens when we get bitter? Well, bitterness we know spreads. Probably felt it in your own life. I have. It spreads to other areas of your life. It spreads into other areas and surfaces in ways that you didn't expect. And then when bitterness begins to surface, what happens? It begins to hurt the people around you. So Naomi doesn't walk in and say, I better keep, keep quiet here. She does a very hard thing. She does a very courageous thing. She does a very brave thing, a very honest thing. And she goes in and she says, this is how it is, and it hurts. And in so doing, is beginning to bring an order into the chaos that the pain has brought in her life. So that's what she says. She says it as it is. But here's the next thing. And ask the question, where does she stand? So let's reread verse 20 and verse 21 here. She said to them, notice the repetitions. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, here's what we see in Naomi right there, is that we see the tears flowing for sure. I mean, the word wept has been repeated in verse 1. We've seen it. She's hurting. But what we also see, and this isn't easy, I get it, but we also see a trust in the middle of the pain that has been brought upon her. We see the tears and we see the trust. Now, now that, that is the framework of a lament. Now, we see this in the life of King David. We see it other areas in the Bible. We see it in the prophets. The statement of the pain and the, the, the permission to let the tears flow. And then at the end of that, a trust, recognizing that we don't always have the answers that we would like to have. Now, those two things are needed in our pain. Because think about it. If you've got trust without tears, well, your faith might feel a bit flimsy and half-hearted. It might feel a little bit fake. But what if you have tears without trust? Well, it's hopeless, maybe even fatal. But what do we have right here? We have the tears and we have the trust in Naomi. Now, Naomi doesn't walk in and say, right, God, this is hard, and I'm going to put my relationship with you on hold until you give me the reason for the pain that I've gone through. We don't find her doing it. We, we know what that feels like, perhaps, and we know, we know what it is to stand there and say, God, I want to know why. I want to know why it hurts so much. I want to know why I'm carrying this burden. I want to know why it's gone on for so long. I want to know why I find myself in these shoes. I want, what have I done to deserve this kind of stuff? Why? Just tell me why. Now, we don't have that from Naomi, because I think what she recognizes is that she doesn't always have all of the answers. She doesn't see things from God's perspective. Chapter 2, 3, and 4 of Ruth haven't happened yet. But what we do have from her is the tears and we have the trust. Now, now we want to ask the question often when we're going through hard times, and it makes sense, why? Why do we go through? Why do we carry these burdens? Why do we face bitter circumstances in our lives too? Now, the Bible sometimes does give us reasons. Sometimes in the Bible, we can face a hard time because of our own sin. Think about Jonah, for example. We looked at him a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And Jonah was fleeing God's call to Nineveh. Jonah went the complete opposite direction. And then what happens in Jonah chapter 1? The Lord throws. That's the actual word that's used. The Lord throws a storm on the sea. And it's a wake-up call to Jonah. But he's facing that hard time. He's in that storm because of his own sin. Sometimes we can face situations, hard circumstances, because it's a wake-up call. Secondly, we can face hard times because of someone else's sin. Think about the sailors on the boat with Jonah. Was it, was it their fault that this storm had been thrown on the sea? No. They act admirably. They act in faith. We see them, and in the end, worshipping the covenant God of Israel. But they're going through that because it's their fault? No. It was for Jonah. The storm was attached to that sinner. We can face hard times because of other people's sin. And then we can face hard times in our lives because God is going to use the pain. There's a hard one to accept. Because sometimes we go through hard circumstances, prolonged hard circumstances, bitter scenarios and situations, because God is planning to use that pain for our good, for others' good and his glory. Think about John chapter 9, for example, in, 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 the, in the story of the blind man being healed. 
there's this big debate that goes on amongst the religious people around saying, what, Jesus, why has this man been born blind? Is it because his parents sinned? And Jesus responds by saying, no, no, he didn't sin, his parents didn't sin, but he's blind because this event was about to happen. So I could show up and heal him. And Jesus does exactly that, and he shows them what he's come to do, to make the blind see. Now think about that. That man had gone through a life of blindness. Can you think of how hard and debilitating that would have been? Particularly in this stage in history, really, really, really hard. And he went through all of that. Why? So that in that moment, Jesus could shine his light through healing him and show everyone that he had come to save. That's hard to stomach. But the man had gone through that hard, hard blindness, that bitter circumstance his entire life so that God could use that to shine his light of healing and salvation to the world around him. And think about Stephen as he's stoned. Saul's watching. And we're left with no doubt in the book of Acts that Saul's conversion came out of the fact that he'd been persecuting people. So Stephen ends up getting stoned and that feeds into Saul's conversion that ends up converting loads, millions of people around the Mediterranean world. Now, I've met people before who've been through incredible, long-winded, debilitating bouts of depression and anxiety. And then what happens when they meet somebody else who's gone through depression and anxiety? They run straight to them. They stand next to them. They put their arm around them. They walk with them, say, we're going through this together, and I'll point you to Jesus. I've met people who've gone through terrible, long, extended bouts of loneliness. And as soon as they find someone else who goes through loneliness, they go straight to them, arm around them. I'm with you. We'll go through this together. And what happens? What's the result? There's a relationship, yes, of course. But God brings his healing through that. And so there was, there was pain, but what did the pain lead to? The pain led to God shining his light of salvation and healing into the world. And of course, there's a fourth option. The fourth option is that we just don't know. Now, sometimes those first three can be quite clear, and you just know, okay, I know why I'm going through this. But sometimes, and I'd say more often than not, in my experience, is that we just don't have an answer. That's really, really hard with some of the things we face. And we watch the innocent suffer, and we watch people we love hurt, and we watch other people making bad decisions, and we bear the brunt of other people's bad decisions. Yes, we know we face those circumstances that threaten to make us bitter and resentful. We know that, and we know what it's like to cry out, God, why? Why am I going through this? Why did I face that loss? Why did I face this kind of a pain? Why? But sometimes we're not given the answer why And all we're left to say is, I don't know. Now that's hard for 21st century culture to stomach. (laughs) I find that hard to stomach. I'm a part of 21st century Western culture that demands knowledge, that demands answers, that demands to know, God, if there is a reason, then I have a right to know it. But you know what? We're the only culture within the history of the world, in this place in the world, that's actually demanded to know an answer why to everything. I'll try and illustrate this. When we go to Washington State to go visit my wife's family, in the evenings what we like to do is have a a fire. My father-in-law calls it a burning. So we go out and he's got these these big rocks in a circle. In the middle he's got some wood and he'll start it with a flamethrower and get this big fire going and we'll go and sit around it. Now now they're also, he's not around anymore, but last time we were there they had this wild cat called Gilbert. And Gilbert would just 
randomly attacked me. I don't know why, but I'd, I'd be sitting there around the fire, and he'll run up, he'd get really wound up. He, he was a tomcat, he was an outside cat, so it was really hard, really, really, really tough guy, and he'd run out, and he'd just dig his claws and his teeth into my calf muscle as I was sitting. And I, was like, I don't want to go out if Gilbert's there. <laughs> now, now, also, what they have around their fire is... Uh, it's really funny trying to figure this out, but I was sitting there one, one time, and, and I was just... Um, I was just sitting there, and it felt like there was a little pinprick in my arm. I was like, what on earth? That really hurts. That's strange. Didn't think anything of it. A few minutes later, another pinprick on the other arm. What is going on? And then on my leg. What's happening? I can't see anything that's actually getting me. These little pins. And my father-in-law says, oh, it's, it's no seams. And I'm like, what was that? Is that some kind of Native American word? What's a no, what's a no seam? What's going on? He says, no, no, it's a, it's a bug called a no seam. It's, it's able to bite you enough to make it really, really hurt, but you can't see it. Really? So, so next time I get this little pinprick, I look down and, oh yeah, a tiny, tiny, minuscule little bug is biting me. It's a noceum. Now, now imagine I'm standing in the house, I'm looking at the burn as it's going on, and I say to someone next to me, is Gilbert out there? Because if he's, if he's there, I'm not going. And they will look and they'll say, Gilbert is or isn't there. What if I'm standing at the door and I say, are there any noceums around the fire? And they'll go, I don't know. Probably. We can't see them, though. Oh, okay. So there might be a noceum, but you just can't see it yet. Yeah, there probably is noceums. There's definitely noceums in the summer, but you can't see them. You see, our culture kind of looks at suffering and says, if there's a black cat there, then we should see it, and we need to see it. We demand to see it. Ruth's position, and I think the position of the Bible, has a position of humility that says, look, we don't order the universe. We don't completely understand it. And there might well be a reason, but we just can't see it. In fact, God got his reasons that we don't completely understand. God's ordering and orchestration of the universe is far beyond our finite, fallen human minds. We don't completely understand it. Our culture looks at suffering and says, we need that reason. Give me that reason. And if there is no reason, well, there can't be a good reason. I think Naomi would look at that like everyone else throughout history, and particularly in the Scriptures, and say, well, there is a reason, but we're not always permitted to see it or know it. Sometimes we have to look at bitter circumstances and just say, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But we know where she stands. She stands in a place of trust. Now, we're not saying that's easy. We're not saying it's an easy thing to do, to face that kind of a pain and just say, I'm going to trust God in the middle of that. No. There is a declaration of the pain. She lets the tears flow. But she stands in a place of trust where she doesn't immediately dismiss trusting God just because she's going through pain. She doesn't have the answers. I don't think the answers are really revealed to us in Ruth chapter 1. We can make our speculations, but we don't really know. There is a tears and a trust. It's a painful place to be. But it's where Naomi is. Now, the third thing. What are we to see? So what she says, where she stands, but what are we to see? What is the author of Ruth chapter 1 wanting us to see? Now have have a look right here. Look at the last verse in 22. And look at how it finishes. Naomi returned, that's the word shuv, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned, shuved, to the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem, there's that repetition, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now there's a couple of things the author wants us to see. Number one, that the barley harvest is almost there. 
Now, now think about it. Naomi's come back and she says, I'm empty. I was full. What happens at harvest? You're filled again. So it's almost as like there's this little uh, hint or an echo of what's about to come. The barley harvest is here, uh, a.k.a. there's fullness on the way. But also what we have right here is the word almighty. She used it twice. Now, the word Lord is used to speak about God most of this chapter, but we have the word almighty. The word almighty is used in Genesis four times, and every time it's used, it's on the cusp of Lord, the Lord blessing his people in ways that they hadn't imagined. Now, now, the book of Ruth is designed to be read out loud in one sitting. They didn't have the publication like we do. They couldn't go onto Amazon and buy a nice cheap Bible for a couple of quid. They couldn't do that. It had to be read out loud. And so it was read out loud. What was given by the author were these little hints of what's about to come. And we get these little hints right here. The Almighty, yeah, twice. And the barley harvest is on the way. A fullness is coming. What the author of Ruth is showing us is that there is a bigger plan of God's rescue at play. I have to say that again. There is a bigger plan of God's rescue at play. Naomi doesn't see that yet. And we know we get to the end, she will be full. There will be a harvest. There will be a harvest in her heart. And we will get to see that. But the author of Ruth is saying, in the middle of your pain, in the middle of Naomi's pain, can you see, just for a second, please see this, that there is a bigger picture of God's rescue at play behind the scenes that we don't fully see yet, but one day we will. And one day it will be revealed. And one day the ordering and the orchestration of this very, very hard life will make complete sense because he's going to wipe away every tear and every pain and all the suffering is going to be gone. You see what the author of Ruth is saying? Do you see in this pain she's going through, there is a bigger plan of God's rescue at play behind the scenes, and she's going to see that. You know, in our pain, this this doesn't make it easy. It doesn't take away the tears. But it certainly can fill us with hope when we feel hopeless and we're hurting, is that God does have a bigger plan of rescue at play. Now think about this, you've you've got Ruth, you've got Naomi and all the characters of the book looking forward to the promise that God had made. That one day he would send somebody to crush the head of the evil one. Somebody who was going to do something about suffering, bitter circumstances and sin. Somebody was going to do something. Now we are in a more privileged position because we can look back and we can see the one who they were hoping for and he goes by the name of Jesus Christ because we know God sent his son to walk in our shoes, to know our lives, to look in the eyes of those enduring bitter circumstances and to be able to say, there is actually a hope beyond this. There is more going on behind the scenes than you see. And we know that this Savior, he ends up living the life we couldn't live. He dies the death we deserve and he rises to new life. And you know what? He makes a promise. He says, one day I'm coming back. One day things are going to be new. One day sin is going to be dealt with. Bitter circumstances, no more. That kind of a loss, that kind of a pain that Naomi goes through, no more. It's all going to be gone for those who are in Christ. There is a hope. Why? Because there is a bigger picture rescue plan at play. You know, people often come and talk to me and say, uh, here's what I'm going through, James. Here's the burden I'm bearing. And often people will ask me, James, do you think God's going to take it away? It's a really hard answer because we're not guaranteed, we're not promised that it will be taken away. Maybe it will. And what I always say to people is, let's pray for it because we know a God who is able, 
a God who is good and a God who delights to give good things to us. So we're going to pray, we're going to ask. And if he gives it, we're going to celebrate, we're going to give thanks, and we're going to let the world know about it. But it's not a promise I can give. The promise I can give is that he's with us. And the other promise I can give is that one day it's going to be different. One day he's going to wipe away every tear. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that one day he will dwell with us. See, there's a comfort the author of Ruth is trying to show us, is that God has a bigger rescue plan at play in ways we don't fully understand. But he's working it out. And it will be for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, now we've seen Naomi go into, into Bethlehem in a very painful, painful place with bitter circumstances. What does she say? She says it as it is. She takes that permission. Where does she stand? She stands in a place where she doesn't immediately dismiss trusting God. And what are we, what are we told to see? We're shown that there is a rescue plan, a bigger picture rescue plan at play. And there's the comfort we find right here, is that there is another plan at play. There is a rescue plan for people like you and me. And that's where we're to stand this morning. So let's pray, and then we get to sing our last song. Lord, we are thankful for the book of Ruth. We, we see the agony that Naomi limps into Bethlehem with. We see her response. And perhaps, Lord, we know what it's like to carry heavy burdens. But we know there's promises. There's promises from you that you will not leave us. That Jesus said, surely he will be with us until the end of the age. And there's another promise that one day things will be better. And we can cling on to that hope. Help us to glean something from Naomi's response. Help us to hope. Holy Spirit, stir within us. And give us a hope. Show us that God, our Father. Holy Spirit, show us that there is a bigger rescue picture at play. And we're asking it in Jesus' name. Amen.